You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host, Greg E. Hill, the culture change agent. On this show, we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, empower, and inspire our current and future generational leaders. And I'm pumped up. It's Thursday. Minority Trailblazer podcast dropping. Consecutive weeks. We back on a roll. I got a phenomenal podcast planned. And I got two words for you. What are those two words? <clears throat> Put it in reverse. Before I get to those two words, I want to say make sure you go and leave a review and a rating. Five star, please. Hope you had a great week. Thank y'all for tuning into another podcast. I appreciate y'all. I love y'all. Back to the story. <clears throat> Drive. Two words. What are the two words? Love and try. I'm going to steal my, my guest thunder real quick with the try word. I'm going to get to that in a second. But why those two words? Why even start the podcast off with two words? Because this week something's been seeping into my spirit. I just want to share it real quick before we get into the nitty gritty of the podcast. In love. Not because I'm, I'm not in love. <laughs> For those of you that are inquiring, I'm not in love. I'm not about to pop no question. Nothing like that. Nothing crazy like that. However, I was watching the Gary V. And Gary Vaynerchuk, to be exact, and I was watching one of his episodes, and he said something, do you love what you get up to do every single day? And I know all my self-help people, my motivational people, you've heard it on many YouTube channels, you've heard it online. Do you love what you do? Follow what you love? Follow your passion? But then, when I really thought about it, I was like, dang, okay, let me think about that. And then he said, do you love what you see when you look in the mirror? He says, if you love what you see when you look in the mirror, a lot of times that correlates to you loving what you do every day and most importantly, loving why you do it. Not loving what you do, because there's some stuff like right now, if you're in college, you might not love college. You might not love class. You might not love education. But the why, the importance, oh, to buy your mom that crib or to buy yourself that crib or to have good credit. I don't not like saving money to pay off credit card debt. But I got to because why? I know I want to have a house one day and I don't know as of yet I can buy the thing cash out. So the why behind it is a little different and I can go all day with that. But that was really hitting me in my face. But the deeper, deeper thing that's been on my mind all week is the word try. 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 I remember three years ago I was in a space um, I don't know if it's a motivational space. I hate the word motivation because motivation only lasts for so long. And some people can have motivation and still not move forward, but that's neither there nor there. But I was in a space where I did not say try. I did not say can't. I just did. 
even if I failed, try wasn't in my vocabulary. Because what does that really mean? I'm going to try to either going to do it or you're not. And ooh, I'm getting excited, I'm getting excited, I'm getting excited. I don't want to steal my, my the guess in this quote number, but that try word is so important. And the most important thing to set the foundation, to set the pulse and the culture of this interview is I'm interviewing a person that didn't take try into consideration. Growing up, he said he wanted to do a doctor. He didn't try to do it. He made things happen and God allowed him to happen and open up those doors to be able to go there. Somebody that says, I'm not going to try to get into one of the best schools in the country. I'm going to do what I need to do to be in arguably the best medical school in the country, Harvard University. A young man said, I, I, I'm not going to try just to get my, 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 my MD. I'm going to get my PhD too. And he got both of them things or working towards in two years, he's going to be an MD and a doctor. Actually, already got his doctor degree. And a, and a young man that, and I'm saying young man like I'm older. He actually older than me, a year older than me. So for all of you out there that's working right now, that's building towards your dreams, that's saying, man, I don't know if I can do that. Do it. Stop saying, I don't know. You, you, no, you do know. You're either going to do it and you're going to find out if you can or you can't. <laughs> you, can't find out, you can't find out if you can't if you don't do. Ooh, I think that's new what they do. You cannot find out if you can't unless you do. And I would be remiss if I didn't tell you right now, since this is the podcast and I love issuing direct challenges because I challenge myself each and every week to remember who you are. This is not for the person that has it all together that's doing what they need to do right now. This is the person listening to the podcast, knowing they have a dream, they have a goal, they have something they need to be doing right now. They need to get up and remember who they are and get started doing it. I don't know if that is eliminating people out of your life that's holding you back. I don't know if that's eliminating things out of your life that's holding you back. I don't know if that's eliminating mindsets out of your life that's holding you back. I don't know if that's eliminating things that you're thinking about right now that's holding you back. I don't know if this podcast is holding back. If this podcast is holding you back, cut it off right now and go do what you need to do. Don't listen to me no more second. Don't tune into another Minority Trailblazer podcast. If you got stuff you know you need to do and you're parlaying right now, don't listen to no more podcasts and go do it right now. Because this whole show is about pushing things forward. My bad, I had to take that level real quick. But for all those who are still on the line, still listening through and tired of my rambling right now, let me get into my guest bio because I'm pumped. He's going to add a lot of nuggets today. And boy, get ready. We are breaking new ground. This is a world premiere right here, man. I'm excited. I hope you're hearing my voice. And I'm, I'm excited because just reading up and doing my research before I even reached out to this brother and now getting him on the line, I was excited, more excited about his success than I've ever been. Like, I mean, I just love it where I see people out here in the culture pushing things forward, but also remember where it came from. So I'm going to dive into his bio. And just just to do a little a little background check, man. I mean, we got professional musician, check, activist, <laughs> check, HBCU grad, check, MIT grad, check, future Harvard MD grad, check. I mean, this is this is this is a world premiere. Like I feel like Funkmaster Flex about to drop Kendrick Lamar's damn album. Like this is how hype I am right now. <laughs> so let me read a snippet of the bio and let me get off the mic. Is a neuroscientist at the Bacower Institute for Learning and Memory and has been conducting biomedical research for over 10 years. Mind you, the dude who's only 28 years old. He currently studies how social information is processed and integrated in the brain in hopes of elucidating the neural circuits responsible for fundamental social behaviors. 
His research is guided by the belief that deconstructing these mechanisms will provide a better understanding of how social groups function and offer more insight into the implications this has for the development and functions of society at large. Within the scientific community, he is also involved in efforts to increase scientists' awareness of social biases and exposure to tools that help increase cultural and intellectual diversity. He also plans to leverage his expertise in social neuroscience to study the current sociopolitical changes confronting American society. As he believes that an interdisciplinary application of social neuroscience, psychology, and sociology can be informative to policy making. I know that is a mouthful. I mean, it's a workout even trying to read through the bio. (laughs) He received his PhD in neuroscience from MIT for short, which is actually Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he received his BS in biology, summa cum laude, from the and I'm an Aggie, but it's the <laughs> North Carolina Central University where he also played on the school's tennis team. And last but certainly not least, he is completing a medical degree at the Harvard Medical School. And that's not it. Like I said before, this guy is, is, is on a whole different level. I'm, I'm excited to have more. So forgive me for my excitement as I introduce my brother, Dr. Stephen Alsop to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Welcome to the show. Man, thank you. I'm extremely humbled by the way you just did that <laughs> intro. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's that, was, that was way too much, man. But uh, thank you for the love. Hey, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, man. I mean, of course, we share honest and real stories in the show. But I got to big up people when I see them doing amazing stuff. Because like I said, I'm, I don't know if you know, but I'm a teacher. I teach at Durham um, at Hillside High School in the business program. And to see okay. people that, that look like us that are doing some amazing things in, in a variety of different fields and just more encouragement for myself and more encouragement for those that are listening to just be inspired and, and also more people to look up to. So, man, hey, we always start to show off with a quote. And for my new listeners out there, every show we started off with a quote and the show usually runs like this. First part, the background, the bio, give the meat. Then the second part is kind of the present day, where you're at now, what do you do? And then the last part is the future round. So as we begin, Dr. Alsop, can you give us a quote that you love and a story about how you apply that quote to your everyday life? Wow, man. Um, there have been so many great quotes by great men and women that you know inspire me. But um, I think right now where I'm at in life, the quote that I has sort of been my mantra and like been at the top of my head is, um, you know, there's no such thing as try Mm. either you will, or you won't do something. And I think, you know, as you move through life, the further and further you progress and the higher and higher you go, the more willing you have to be to sort of take risks and the more willing you have to be to sort of step out and like believe in yourself because it's not as scripted, you know, as the path become less and less scripted, you kind of have to be willing to just have ideas and just do them. And like, you don't try to do them. You either do them and commit to them or you don't, you know? Um, and so deciding what you will and won't commit to, and then just doing it is kind of like where I'm at. So there's no such thing as try is like the quote that I'm trying to live right now. Mm. And what is the last time in your mind that it went to you were on the bait, you were on the, on the, on the edge on something and you said, man, bump it. Either I'm going to do it or I'm not. What is the last thing that popped in your head? Man, there are a few things. I think one of the things that I was really proud of um, that happened last year was that I was able to organize a seminar for my department um, at MIT where 
we got these two speakers, really great speakers from Tufts University to come in and speak about social uh, social biases and sort of how uh, the brain sort of sets us up to make some of these biases and how those prejudices impact, you know, people of color throughout society, but also in sort of the science field. And the reason why I was proud of it is because it's the type of idea that I think in the past I would have had and been like, it would be great if somebody would do that. <laughs> or, we sh- or, you know, or we should, we should talk about this. Why aren't we talking about this? And then I was like, you know what? We should, and like, we will. So let's figure out how to get it done. And what I realized is like, once you really step out and start putting action behind your ideas, um, you know, the universe aligns things in certain ways where uh, things start to come together. And so I was able to get, you know, a lot of people that just supported it and sort of were behind it and we were able to get funding and a grant to sort of put that program on. Mm-hmm. And I know I said a mouthful. And first of all, that's that's phenomenal. Since I'm right there to think, what was the first step you took once you had that idea to kind of get it off the ground? Um, so the first thing I I did was essentially talk to other people, talk to other graduate students and ask, hey, what do you guys think about this? Do you think this is something that should be a meaningful part of the conversation? Why or why not? And sort of the consensus that I was getting is that either it was something people hadn't thought about at all, which, you know, was a problem in and of itself. Or if they had thought about it, they did think it was a conversation that we should be having. Um, And so from there, um, I kind of started to ask, okay, so if there were uh, a way to do this, like how would it be funded? And just sort of try Mm -hmm. to reach out to people that, that, you know, would have those types of answers and just connect with people. Like another thing I learned is that you don't have to do everything yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you have certain ideas, there are other people that will be willing to support it and can bring their own sort of talents. And so, you know, it's it you don't have to shoulder everything to you know have certain of your ideas sort of come to life mm-hmm. but the only thing that you can control that you are do by yourself is starting so that's that's yeah, the individual that thing yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so to backtrack a little bit i know i said a mouthful as far as like the current field that you're in in the bio so could you please kind of as we before we get into your backstory who you are before harvard before mit before central and all that stuff i do want to kind of paint the picture of the kind of work that you're they're currently working on in the space that you're in right now because i said a lot of meaty words in the intro yeah yeah um, so right now I work um, in the field of social neuroscience. I work in uh, Kay Tai's lab at MIT. She's a phenomenal, um, you know, scientist. Has been a great mentor um, in sort of looking at systems neuroscience to try to answer some of these more complex uh, social problems. And so I basically use uh, animal models to try to study really fundamental types of social. Uh, processing such as how do you learn about things in the environment that are dangerous without experiencing them yourself Mm. right which is like super super fundamental to survival if you think about sort of our evolutionary history you don't want to have to know that something is bad by experiencing it right usually that would be like a predator or poisonous food or something like that so if i have that experience the chances of me surviving aren't very high so i have to have some mechanism to take the experience of another animal and be able to deduce from that some contingency about the world. Like what predicts something bad happening or what predicts something good happening? And so like, how is the brain able to do that? How is the, how is the brain able to take someone else's experience mm-hmm. and use it to make me feel a certain way that allows me to learn? So I, I study that in, in animal models and hoping that understanding those types of processing 
um, will allow us to better understand how we're able to be social and how those processes go wrong when you're dealing not only with psychiatric diseases, but also with a lot of sort of the social issues that, you know, face us currently. Mm, that's that's deep. And I can't I can't wait to dive into what even kind of brought about that and how that how you can came to those conclusions. But before we jump into that, we're going to start off with the beginning. So who is who is Alsop, Stephen, before before all of this, man? Show tell us a little bit about where you're from and your upbringing. Um, so, you know, I, I'm a first generation American. My parents are, uh, from Trinidad and Tobago. So I, I was born in Brooklyn, but I actually grew up some time in Trinidad before coming back to the U S. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like, I think as many typical immigrants, right, you don't come here and automatically things are super comfortable. And so, you know, there were times and I mean, my parents were amazing. And one of the things that I think was most amazing is their, sort of fostering uh, an environment for asking questions mm-hmm. and for for seeking education as a tool. Um, and so growing up in that environment, you know, I think it really sort of put me on a path where that combined with my natural inclination for being a questioner sort of really put me on a path that, you know, was, I was able to sort of take advantage of, of a lot of opportunities that, that I was fortunate to be presented with. Um, but, you know, we, we definitely economically, you know, struggled. Like, it was, at, at some point, you know, all five of us were, you know, in, like, one bedroom and, like, you know, things like that. And, you know, so it eventually was you, came... your mother, your father, and who else? And my two younger sisters. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my dad, though, super brilliant, brilliant guy and super, you know, well-rounded. Um, and so he actually ended up becoming a naturopathic physician. Um, <laughs> wow. And what, first of all, what I ain't gonna lie, what is a nathropathic? Because I know people in the audience like, what, 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 what is that? So, there, uh, as opposed to sort of allopathic medicine, which is like your typical medical doctor that you would go to, a naturopathic doctor or an ND, um, sort of believes in more holistic oh, sort of okay. sorts of approaches. So, those are the people who are sort of like behind like more alternative forms of medicine, so acupuncture or different herbs, Chinese alternative medicine, like a lot of those things would fit under what a naturopathic physician would do um and so yeah he's he's also like a minister so he's super well-rounded my mom's an educator too she's a teacher um so yeah a very a very blessed you know sort of home environment that i think was really able to cultivate a lot of my innate gifts Mm, that's 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 real that's real that's real so middle school high school in New York, like, where's your middle school? Oh school yeah, at? so I went, so I went to, I went to high school in Prince George's County, Maryland. Oh, okay. um, the, the DMV, yeah. DMV. Um, <laughs> yeah. High Point High School. Um, yeah, and that was that was a that was also you know like a, a great place to be, um, you know, while I was there, and then from there, you know, went on to North Carolina Central University. And what made uh, uh, Central your your choice? Like, I mean, your black college tour or. Yeah, so honestly, coming from like a Caribbean background and sort of just like the culture that I grew up around, HBCUs weren't necessarily something on my radar. So mm-hmm. I actually, you know, my top choices that year were actually MIT, Hopkins, um, and Penn. Oh, you switched and up so, big time, boy. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so I didn't get into MIT, but I got into Hopkins and Penn, but the financial aid was crazy. Like I think the year I got in, Hopkins, uh, Penn was fifty-one thousand a year. Ooh. Hopkins was like forty-eight thousand a year. Um, 
So even with like, you know, all the different grants and stuff like that, it was still going to be more than we were able to afford. North Carolina Central University gave me a full scholarship plus stipend, plus laptop, plus like the best dorm. Like, you know, it was like a great scholarship. So I was like, well, I should definitely go visit. And like when I visited, like I fell in love with it. And I was like, okay. But I still wasn't actually even convinced. But I was like, you know what, I'll come. And then if I don't like it, like I'll just transfer to Duke. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, like halfway through the first semester, it was very clear, like I wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, and yeah, I loved, I loved, I love Central. You know, it was a great, it was a great, great experience and really put me, I think, I mean, I don't get to where I am now without having gone there. Yeah, again, I because I don't. Sometimes I get sidetracked on podcasts. I spend a lot of time in the, the first thing, but I do want to ask about the central <laughs> experience as far as the first. What? Because some would say that, wow, okay, you got hard, you got Hopkins up there, you got these these great research based schools, and then you got North Carolina Central. And I'm an HBCU grad too, so I hold HBCUs in the highest esteem. But however, that is a it's a different, this different, different breed of schools in that in that sense. So, what was the core thing that you got out of that space that you say that really propelled you? And the reason why I asked too, because I know some listeners may out there maybe have children or people that are debating that are that are like, okay, what what schools should I go to? I'm, I'm thinking about Ivy League, but I have A&T right here, so or I have Central right here. So, what was your biggest takeaway from your experience there? Man, I think for me it was just you really get to experience culture in a way that, you know, like the black experience I think is, is almost like, it's almost a miniature experience of the entire sort of American black experience. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can find the, 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 all of the range, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of represents what black America is like you find within the black college. And so it's a mm-hmm. way of sort of, sort of, almost condensing your black experience in a way that allows you to understand and fully appreciate the breadth and depth of it. Um, and so that combined with, you know, like the brotherhood that I found there, I, I was an alpha while I was there, mm-hmm. um, you know, playing tennis. And it's so I think that culture and sort of that, that understanding of having people behind you, you know, that are genuinely behind you. And I think one of the things I never felt like, while I was there was like a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. I never felt unsupported. Or I never felt like there wasn't someone who like really cared about me and wanted me to do well. And I think that sort of nurturing is something that I needed at that time, you mm-hmm. know, and had I not had that, I might not have been able to really fully expound on the things that I needed to, to develop. Mm, I love, I love that. I love that. I love that. And I didn't need to ask, but when you were growing up, did you dream when you were a kid? What what, what was your dream career? Did, did med? Did, did you ever think, oh, I wanted to be a doctor? This like, what was your dream? Yeah, I I think I I've always been interested in the sciences. Like I I've been asking questions about how the world works since I could ask questions about how the world works. You know, mm-hmm. and and we all do that. Honestly, that's really a human thing. We all really are scientists at heart. We want to know why. It's like the question kids always ask, right? Like, why, why? That's the thing we all want to know. Um, and that's what science is, really. Um, but I think I always saw myself as like a zoologist and I saw myself as a vet. And going into college, I actually really didn't even know what I wanted to do. I applied for different majors at different schools. Like some schools, I applied music. Some I applied philosophy. Some I applied biology. So I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I chose biology because, like I said, I was really into science and um, sort of the 
understanding about like how life works Mm -hmm. and I was really good in biology in high school and like had really good like AP biology teacher Mm -hmm. and so and and that was one of the the degrees at Central that was actually particularly good Mm -hmm. so once I decided to go there I was like you know what I'll major in biology and from there sort of things really took off once I got introduced to certain mentors like Dr. Antonio Baines and you know Dr. Yale Hallwell there are a bunch of great professors there but um yeah, so I, I didn't actually really know for sure what I wanted to be. If I, I don't even know if I still, I don't know if I, <laughs> I, actually, I actually don't even know if I know now what I want to be. But nah, yeah. that's that's some good stuff. And also too, I I read your bio and I've seen stuff online. You're you're a musician as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I play um I play the piano and I try to sing and yeah, I have fun. I have fun. How long have you been doing that? Um. I mean, I've been playing since I was really young. My dad's a multi-instrumentalist, so I, and, and like, my mom can sing. My, like, both of my sisters sing. Like, and where, we, where did your family come from? It's not like the Cosbys. <laughs> 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 uh, but we were, we were really musical growing up. Um, and, you know, like, in, singing in church and, like, stuff like that. So music was a big part of my life always. And I think I really started taking it seriously um when once i got introduced to jazz like my freshman year of college was kind of like when i formally got introduced to jazz like both sort of conceptually and like how to play it um and that's when i really started taking it more seriously and sort of like taking more like professional gigs and things like that oh man that's dope and before we kind of transition into that this tunnel of getting into med school because i know a lot of people hit my line when i put out some um some tweets some questions about this whole med school process and all this other stuff I did want to ask, I know a lot of proud graduates from HBC universities, and I know a lot of proud uh, people that are attending them now. What would you, what advice would you give for those that are attending now and this and just in general about really taking full advantage? It only have to be even on HBCUs in general in college, taking advantage of the experience. Like what 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 made you different than a lot of your other colleagues that may have came in with similar ambitions but really didn't get is what you got out of it man that's a tough question i don't know if i i don't know if i have a really good easy answer for that i think one thing that i can say is that people often limit themselves by their own expectations um and one of the things that i found is that some people coming in already had an expectation of what they thought an HBCU should offer them or should be able to maximally offer them. Um, and I think once, and, and this is, this is sort of a, a deeper psychological thing, I think for, for certain yeah, sort of um, us, oppressed groups, oppressed groups in general. Yeah. But um, I think if you do allow your expectations to be limited, then you've kind of already cut off what you think, your potential is before you've even started. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, like I would be in a class. Um, and because I really didn't have a preconceived notion of like what an HBC should or shouldn't be. Oh, so it was a school. It wasn't like, Oh, it's a, I'm going to, yeah, I mean, I knew like it was an HBCU and I knew like historically what that meant. And I knew that it wasn't necessarily Johns Hopkins in terms of like resources or pen, but I didn't also come in with like a negative, view of like, I don't think this is going to be able to offer me these things. So it's kind of like, I'm going to go and see what can be offered. And if I don't like it, then I'll leave. But if I do, then I'll stay. Mm -hmm. And so I went in with like an open mind of what was possible 
versus I think a few people that I noticed that would come in sort of already thinking like, okay, well, this is sort of the maximum amount I can expect. And so I'm not even going to really ask more of myself. Mm. Not even like ask more of other people, but ask more of myself, you know? Um, and so that's one thing that could happen, I think. But I think there's a lot of other reasons too that could be at play. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um and like feel free anytime as 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 we kind of dig deep into the podcast, if you really want to just let a thought out about kind of your 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 I know because I know as as a scientist practitioner, you're very a lot sometimes they're very measured in because I mean you don't want to say stuff out there that have no 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 data, no research behind it. But feel free on this. This is a podcast where we try to explore at times real deep questions that honestly sometimes are not asked in in our, in our community. So right. anytime that you feel uh, the the edge feel free so let's talk med school and that whole journey and that process so take us through when you decided okay i'm doing the med school route and if you could take us through your 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 study habits because a lot of people had questions about your study habits for the mcat um the pressure and then the whole process into getting into arguably one of the best med schools that ever exist yeah and i think so I think for people who are interested in going to med school, it's really worthwhile to ask, like, why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. I think your why is is really important from the beginning um, because I think there are a lot of wrong reasons why you could do it. What's the wrong um, reasons? Uh, it's what your parents want you to do because you're a smart black person and you either have to be a doctor or a lawyer um because you know you yeah. want to make money you want to be respected by society like there are a lot of reasons and 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 I'm not going to say that those can't be a part of those of your reason like mm -hmm. they can but they aren't sufficient to really give you what it takes to be able to do it and to be able to do it with the sort of uh humility and patience that it takes to actually be a good doctor ooh right That's and so um, and I think, I mean, people who are involved with the healthcare can know when they have a doctor that should be a doctor and a doctor who like hates the fact that they're a doctor. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of reasons for that, that could be outside of the reason they joined. But sometimes it's also like this person was a smart person, but maybe they shouldn't have been a doctor. Maybe they should have been something else. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's the first place to start. Um, and I don't know, I believe like when you're really doing the things that you're passionate about then sort of your story and your path speaks for itself. And what I mean by that is like a lot of times I think pre-meds say, okay, I need to do these like five things in order to have a good application. So I'm going to just like do the minimum of these five things so that I can have it on my application so that I can get into med school. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there are things you need to do, right? You need to have a certain GPA, you have to have a certain MCAT score, and that differs depending on what school you're applying to. But then there are a lot of other things that I think people do, not because they're really passionate about that thing, or not because that's like really what they want to do, but it's like, I'm trying to check a box. Mm. And I think that's the wrong way of approaching it. I think you start with what am I passionate and how do those things relate to my desire to help people in this way? Mm. And sort of when you do things that way, when you're ready to write your essay, which is really the thing that in your medical school application will most differentiate you from other people, right? So if you're applying to Harvard, you know, the majority of applicants are going to have good GPAs. The majority of applicants are going to have good MCATs. The majority of applica applicants are going to have done extracurriculars. You know, like they're going to have all the checkbox mm -hmm. things. 
the real question is like, who are you? What are you passionate about? And like, why does that mean that you should be a doctor and that you would be a good doctor mm. and like happy doing this? Right. And I think oftentimes people don't ask, they kind of just skip over that question. It's kind of like, oh, I want to be a doctor. So let me do these things versus like, what am I passionate about? And like, how is being a doctor best serve my passions? And if they do, then the things that you do will kind of put you in a place and give you a story that will allow you to be successful in your, your application process. Granted, you have like, you know, the right GPA and, and MCAT scores. Hmm. And I think as far as that is concerned, you know, like GPA, obviously, I think, you know, you go to your classes, you do the things you're supposed to do, you get the grades. The MCAT, though, I think is one of the things, particularly for people of color, mm -hmm. that is a barrier. Mm. Um, and of course, I think there's a deeper issue at play in terms of just standardized testing in general. Like we have data to show that standardized tests don't actually predict like how well someone will be as a resident or how well they'll perform as a doctor. Like we know these things mm -hmm. and there's a whole other sort of thing tied to that. But I think oftentimes people of color don't have necessarily enough mentorship about what it takes to actually do well on a test like the MCAT. Mm -hmm. So for me, for instance, like I, you know, like I didn't actually realize how hard I needed to study. I'm not a good actual standardized test taker. Oh. The way that the way that my brain works, it just doesn't fit that format well. Like I overthink things too much. It's not and, and, and no one ever really taught me like you should learn how to take tests instead of necessarily learning the information. Like, you know, the information, you just don't know how to take these tests. Mm -hmm. You should probably learn how to take the tests and that will help you. Right. Um, so for me, actually, I one of my really good friends, this guy named uh, Garrett Conyers, um, who actually ended up becoming a Harvard Medical student as well. He I actually ended up in a summer program with him and I saw him studying mm -hmm. for the MCAT and sort of the level of grind that he had while he was studying really sort of is what showed me like, oh, I'm definitely not even close to doing enough, you know. And that sort of motivated me to like actually study that I was able to actually get a score that was, you know, good enough that I was able to get into, you know, like my dream school. But it takes a lot, I think. And, and that's why I ask about if it's if it's your passion, because I think when things are hard, the thing that allows you to sort of go through it and like really enjoy the grind is like you're passionate about it. Mm, and I think one thing, two things stuck out to me. The, the last thing you said as far as enjoy the grind. Because it's a whole, and and I'll, I'll matter of fact, since we're there, what does that mean to you? Because I mean, grind is not something. It's it's not. It's hard for people to enjoy. It's something you, it's hard to go through. It takes time or whatnot. How do you kind of create a mindset where you enjoy it? Like outside of just passion. Okay, a lot of people will say they're passionate about money. They're passionate about succeeding, but they're still they don't enjoy the grind. They're lazy as a mug. So what like what other things? kind of helps with that and getting getting that enjoy piece in there man i think once you i think you have to, well it's all tied together for me because mm -hmm. a part of it is the vision right like i have a vision of a lot of things that i want to do and how i want to you know like influence the people around me and mm -hmm. like i have a vision and so that vision is intrinsically motivating it's something that I have in front of me that I'm going towards, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
part of what I sort of said in the beginning when you asked me about that quote is like, oftentimes I would have a vision and it's like, no, that's too big. So I don't, uh, I'll try to do it, but I don't know if I'll actually like really do that. Cause that's kind of like, I don't really know if that would work, you know, mm-hmm. but that might be too much of a risk or that's too big. Um, and so I think part of that understanding that it's a process and like, as you grow and as you evolve, like this hard work is like a part of that process, I think is the thing for me that is just sort of intrinsically motivating. And I think for people who say they're passionate about something, but aren't driven to sort of execute the vision they have mm-hmm. may not actually have found their passion yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm far be it from me to tell somebody they haven't found their passion. <laughs> hey, no, you preach about that. I like it. I like but, it. <laughs> but but I think if you look at the great men in the world and and women in the world, they were driven by something. You know, and oftentimes I think a lot of that is is really knowing yourself and like really taking the time to personally develop. And I, it's funny. I said something today on Facebook where I said, you know, I I learned that I first had to fix myself and like my immediate family surrounding before I try to change the world. Mm. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. you have to, there's a process that you have to go through and going through that process. I think once you really become clear about what your vision is, it, it just, you become driven, (laughs) you know, you become driven to, to do it because it, it drives you. And I think people, we don't really teach people how to cultivate visions. Mm. We teach them how to go work for somebody else's vision. You know, you work for somebody like our whole education process is essentially teaching people how to work for somebody else's vision. It doesn't necessarily teach them how to cultivate a vision, how to have an idea and visualize it and like put it out in front of them and then organize steps to get to that vision. You know, like we don't necessarily teach people that. And so I think a lot of people just haven't really tapped into their passion or understood how to use this process of sort of mental, you know, creation to, to drive them towards, you know, whatever they're passionate about. Yeah, no, nah, you hit it on the head. And the last thing um, I want to touch into before we talk about kind of your, your med school experience and dive into that, I did want to ask, you said something critical and I want to, uh, I want to get, want you to get descriptive about it. Cause you said you had a friend and you said you looked at his study ground for the MCAT and you was like, what? Whoa, it's a whole different level. So first, when you when you saw his study grind, what was your study grind at where it was? Like as far as hours, how much time you were putting in? Yeah. And then what did it change to? Because I want these people that are studying for the MCAT, people that are studying for the bar exam, people that are studying for the GMAT to kind of, I know they're all different tests, but that attitude and that time and that grind, yeah. I want people to kind of see it. Okay, so... Again, like I said, I'm not a good, like, I'm not a good test taker. So, uh, at least a standardized test taker. And so I already knew, and, and this is something I've learned, like I have to put in time. And so in the beginning, I'd say like maybe a year before I planned on taking the MCAT, um, I would maybe look at a book every now and then, like just flipping through, but not really studying, like not studying at all. Um, and then I didn't really start studying until I started, uh, like, maybe a month before I started my summer research program. Mm-hmm. I had to take it in August. So let's say I started studying in May. Um, so first of all, that's already not like I should have been studying harder before that because like I'm not a good test taker, right? Mm-hmm. And as a person of color, 
the, you're sort of at a disadvantage when it comes to standardized test taking because of how the questions are made and cultural things and like all of that. And there's a data behind that. So you might have to work harder. Um, and so <clears throat> during the summer program, like I kind of came in not really studying that much at all. Like I would maybe work in the lab from nine to five and then maybe study like one or two hours, go play soccer, maybe go to a movie. <laughs> go hang out and then like come back, maybe read like an hour before I go to bed or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe like three hours a day. Mm -hmm. Um, but then my boy, like, first of all, he had like a stack of flashcards, mm -hmm. um, that were handwritten. Whoa. And he was like, you know, going through them. He had, you know, the resources and he was studying and cause he took his earlier, he had to take his earlier in the summer than I did. Mm -hmm. So he was like really full grind, like coming into the summer program. Mm -hmm. Um, and so basically after sort of seeing what he was doing, I ended up adjusting my schedule so that like, I would sometimes wake up at like 4am mm -hmm. and I would read and do questions until like eight, take a shower, get ready, go to lab, work you know, nine to five, nine to six, nine to seven, however long it was in lab, come back, put in another four or five hours, you know, maybe work out, maybe, you know, get a drink or something, hang out, then come back and, you know, go to sleep and do it all again, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I did that for like about a month and a half. And, you know, like I didn't, I think I probably could have even done better had I been studying longer, but I was able to do well enough that it wasn't like something that was prohibitive. You know, my score wasn't prohibitive to me being able to get into the schools I got into. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot to unpack with that, man. But I just leave that, leave that where it stands. And as we go into, um, as we go into your medical experience at Harvard, I did, I did want to ask this to kind of level, level the interview with because I don't want people to come off and I know they, they hear about the grind, they hear this, but I don't want the people to, to look at these accolades and be scared and be like, what in the world? Like, this this, this, this just, he's an outlier and whatnot. So if you could, can you share us a story about, I'm not going to say a failure, but a very humbling time pre, uh, it could be during the med school process or whatnot to make, to, to, to kind of help our audience for those that be like, okay, this is a cool story, but that's, that man, no, he was already smart. He's, you know, blah, blah, bring it home from them and let it know that like, yo, you, you bleed as well. Oh man, I fail all the time, you know, like, um, let me see. I mean, so even, I mean, applying to college, like I said, like I got waitlisted, um, at a bunch of schools, you know, when I first sort of, I've had a lot of times basically where people had to give me wake up calls, mm -hmm. you know, and I've been, I think I've been fortunate that the mistakes that I've made haven't come at a price that was too high to knock me off of my trajectory. Mm. Right. And that's something that, you know, wasn't necessarily in my control. So I'm fortunate in that sense. Um, but I think big failures that I, that I, that I've had, um, were for instance, during college, uh, you know, I basically had to drop a class because, I'd gotten to a point where I was basically getting decent. This was like, I think my, the beginning of my second semester, my first semester of my sophomore year. Ooh, that's um, early in the game. So that was early in the game. And the thing is, you know, HBCU life, HBCU cultures, it has both its, <laughs> it has its yeah. pros and. It, it, and it took some of the, our yeah, smartest yeah. away. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, I ended up dropping that class and, you know, I, I was able to take it later, but it was kind of, for me, it was kind of like, okay, I'm really not focused. And, I had to, you know, do, again, sort of some of the mentorship that I had there, people like Dr. Baines, who were able to sort of keep me on track um, 
you know, I was able to persevere through that. But the the real thing is really just working, man. Just hard work. You know, I think as with any sort of population, there's going to be range of abilities, you know, mm-hmm. in any in anything. Um, but hard work, there's no there's nothing that replaces someone who's like determined and is willing to work for a vision. I mean, we're going to come back to that because I think if you don't know why you're doing something and you don't really understand what you're doing, then it's really hard to motivate yourself to do it, right? And I think part of that, even college, like there are a lot of kids who are in college that don't even know why they're in college, Mm. right? Like somebody said, hey, like you're supposed to go to college after high school. And it's like, okay, cool. They don't know what they want to major in. They don't know what they're interested in. They don't know what they're passionate about. It's just like, I'm in college, so I guess I'll do accounting because i can like have a stable job not saying that everyone who does accounting (laughs) i know people have like line brothers who love accounting right like they love numbers and like that's great but if you look at the people who are doing accounting and they love it it's the people who like actually love accounting not the people who did it just because it was like i guess that's the thing to do but it wasn't driven sort of intrinsically by what they really wanted you know and so for me like the first step if you want to do something big or if you because if you want to do something good, you're going to have to work hard regardless. No mm-hmm. matter what it is, if you want to be great at something, you're going to have to work hard. And I think early on, the best thing to do is really align yourself with the things you're actually passionate about so that when the time comes for you to have to work hard, you're able to do that. Because if you're able to do that, then you're going to be able to face you know, any adversity that, that is there. Nah, nah, you hit that. You hit that on the head, man. So I guess just let's jump up to a little bit before present day, the whole because um, did you do your med school experience and then MIT? Like, what was that transit? Like, when did you get and why MD, PhD? There's a lot like, can you explain that real quick for, for our audience? Because right now, if I'm, I'm I might be incorrect, but right now you already have your PhD and you're, you're working on you're finishing your MD, right? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. And did you start um, in the PhD first or you can go ahead and take us, take us away for that? Yeah. So the, the combined MD PhD program at most institutions works in like a two four two way where like you do two years of med school, like the first two years of med school, which is like mostly coursework. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you do your PhD, however long that takes. Usually for an MD PhD, it would take anywhere from like four to six years. Um, and then you come back and you do your last two years of med school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how most programs are. And like, there's some now more innovative ways that people are trying to go about combining those degrees. Um, but the MD-PhD degree is, is essentially for people who um, basically can't make up their minds, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to do both. <laughs> I'm just going to do both. No, I, I, I mean, it's, I think some of that actually is true, but it, it, it's meant to provide uh people who will be able to specialize in in creating bridges between science and basic science and patient care so how do we take these things that we learn in the biological sciences and how do we take them and transform them into something that will like touch a patient's life Mm -hmm. and you know when i first came to college like i said i didn't know what i wanted to do um, but when I got my hands on the bench and started doing experiments, it was like, oh, this is amazing because I love asking questions. And this is all I get. Like, I just get to ask questions and do experiments and get answers. And that was exciting. And then when I had a chance to, um, you know, do the summer program that I did 
um, at Harvard Medical, um, I was able to see people who were doing research that was basically transforming patients' lives and see doctors who had done experiments in the lab, had come up with sort of, you know, experimental therapeutic agents for certain types of cancers, for instance, and being able to like meet with their patient five years later and their patient has no more cancer, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to see that interaction, it was just so wow. inspiring to know like you can touch someone else's life in that way. And like you can dedicate your life to doing something that you love and have such a great impact for you know, people, real people, and like really touch people's eyes. That was it for me. And uh, that's when I decided, you know, like I wanted to do an MD PhD because I wanted to sort of be able to do research and do science, but I also wanted it to like be something that would one day, you know, help people. And I think I still really hold true to that tenet. I think the way that it will probably actualize might be in slightly different ways than I might have anticipated when I was a junior in college. Mm-hmm. But that same general idea that we should be asking questions in a very rigorous way um, and we should be data driven and we should be using all of it and applying it back to how do we make people better? How do we make society better? Mm, yeah, no, nah, that's, that's great. And it's a great segue because there's more I could ask on that question, but I did, I did want to uh, ask this and kind of paint this because you have, I think a, a unique experience where you have the HBCU experience, you have the the regular um, African African American experience as well as the the educational high level experience as well. So you play kind of both sides of the field. So and this is this is a pretty deep question, but what do you think? And as as you know, you're well aware um, of of what's going on in America and the culture with with civil rights and um, with everything that's going on. And do you believe that it's it's more important for our our individuals? in society now to be engaged or educated? Uh, man, engaged or educated. I mean, I don't, um, <laughs> I think that there should be a mix of all three, right? So I think, for instance, um, we do need people that are going to be educated because I think education provides you access to certain resources. Mm-hmm. Um and certain information that might be harder to get or might be harder to um, sort of crystallize if you aren't in like a academic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think education is important, but I think there are also far too many educated black folk that are super disengaged. Mm. Um, and education that isn't used as a tool for sort of empowering your community and empowering those around you isn't really worthwhile, you know, in my opinion. And so... I think for people that are educated, they should also be engaged. So I, I guess I'm kind of tiptoeing around the question because I think they really <laughs> should be. I think I think I think the way that you have maximal impact is by having people that are both educated and engaged. But even within that sort of action, I think you need everyone to be engaged, regardless of whether they're educated or not. And I think people who are educated but aren't engaged aren't really doing anything, and they aren't useful. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and I know this is like, that's a, that's a difficult question to tackle, but, um, but along those lines, being that you are still, you're, you're a millennial, you're very young and hip too. How, what do you think are some strategies that, that science or the regular people could, 
do to kind of bridge that gap, though, because I think the gap is kind of widening out there. We have a lot of people publishing great research paper on research papers on uh, black educa- black boys in education, this, that, and the third. But then I go to school every day when I have people that are you and you know people that are my age and your age as well that have kids that I teach that are that. That, that honestly, that aren't that 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 educated. The parents that aren't that educated. The parents that are still in few gardens at McDougal Terraces and and all across the world. So, what are some steps that us in the and 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 from from a black community lens could do to kind of start building that bridge? I think I think some of it is already happening in a sense, and I mm-hmm. think sort of through social media, I think is a big is really a big thing because it's it's a place where both sort of like something like black Twitter, for instance, is a place where people from both sides of the aisle are like conjoining to like talk about current issues, mm-hmm. right? If you look at the certain types of memes and if you look at, I think, so actually let me, I'll backtrack and say, so I think social media, but social media really as a part of culture. So I think the way that we bridge the gap is through our culture because just like I listen to Chance mm-hmm. and I listen to Kendrick, you know, the people I know that like my friends that are still in, you know, certain other types of lifestyles, they listen to Chance, they listen to Kendrick. There's there's something about our culture that when we're tapped into it always unifies us regardless mm-hmm. of sort of our economic status or our education status, right? There's certain sort of things that are just a unique part of our culture that sort of transcends uh transcends sort of those economic lines and those educational lines. And I think that when we are tapped into our culture and when sort of the culture is reflective of the things that are going to be conducive to progress, then we are much better able to unify. And if you look at sort of those, those movements that have been successful throughout history, social movements, they were able to create a culture where people could sort of connect and tap into that culture from different entry points Mm. and so be unified um, uh, like along the culture and that culture that they were tapping into was one that was conducive for the progress and the goal they were trying to accomplish and i think we are getting to that place if you look at sort of what is now being more reflected in the music and the art um in sort of how we are utilizing social media I think there's sort of a return to that that's happening, but I think that's sort of going to be one of the keys um, and probably like the biggest catalyst to really um, pushing, you know, certain social agendas forward. Nah, yeah, you hit it. You hit it right on the head. And I I just hope that as we as we grow, we, we still we get there specifically for the younger generation, which I get to see uh, the opportunity. I'm only been teaching for a year, so I'm not going to grandstand as if I've been teaching forever. I come from the corporate space. However... Yeah. It's it's kind of alarming though because I still feel like there is a there, there's still a disconnect with uh, with a lot of our our young our younger generation on um, if if uh, on a lot of different things. But I think through your through your research and those that are others that are in the field that are young in the field and as long as they stay engaged with the culture, which I which I that's why when I was reading your reading your your backstory doing my research, I was so um, enamored because I feel like that you're you're still connected because I, I I know a lot of brothers that got the MDs, got the MBAs from Harvard and all this other stuff. But they they out here. I mean, and nothing wrong with getting yours and getting money because a lot of their they say that when they get all this wealth, they'll be able to kind of bridge the gap. But it's like, 
but they they not sewing into the culture now. So what is your thought? That's a better question. What is your thoughts that? Because, you know, right now you have a lot of responsibilities because you're still completing your med school program. And after that, there's a lot more stuff to do. How do you balance, though, being young and still being able to kind of speak to the culture and do that? How do you balance giving time now and thought and energy rather than kind of just focusing on your career now and then reaching back? Um, honestly, I, I've, I think through, especially the last year, mm-hmm. I've gotten to a place in my life where, um, I kind of am only doing the things that I'm passionate about. Mm. Um, and I'm sort of just being driven by that, honestly. And so I don't really think about, I don't have any deliberate, um, I don't have to have a deliberate sort of uh, effort to make sure that I'm doing one thing or make sure that I'm doing another. It's just like, these are things I'm passionate about. And so these are things that I do. Um, And I think that everyone has their part to play. So I think the Mm -hmm. corporate guy who sort of gets his MBA goes on to become, you know, a junior partner in his firm and it's just like a solid guy who gets the job done and excels in his field, he's helping move society forward. Mm-hmm. You know, the person who's the activist and, you know, wants to take the country over and like overthrow the government, like <laughs> they're, they're helping to move society forward, right? Like even when, like before Malcolm's sort of transformation, like you needed both Malcolm and Martin, right? Like you need the Black Panther Party. You need, you know the SLC, like you need all of these different points of, I don't say points of attack, but really points of attack, you know, against, (laughs) against sort of certain norms. Um, And so I think everyone has their role to play. And so I think the people who are doing what they are passionate about doing, like I let them do that because they're still pushing the, the movement forward in their own way. But for the people who sort of have a different vision, you know, they need to follow their vision and like be true to what their vision should look like for what their life, you know, should look like and not be as worried about the people that are following their vision. Like let them do them and you sort of help the culture the way that you can. If you have a vision for how it should be done, then you make sure that you're living that vision before you try to tell other people what they like, you know, how they should be doing. And that's what I had to check myself on. It's like, I can judge how other people are choosing to live, but like, am I even living the way that I think, I should live, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think once I really started giving into just doing the things I'm passionate about and like really just removing the excess, um, it just becomes really a lot easier to, to sort of be in peace and be in harmony and just do the things that you need to do. Yeah. And I think a reoccurring theme, if anybody were to take if, if one thing away from this podcast is the importance of, and, and this is cliche, but it's so real knowing yourself. Um, well, you know yourself, like you said, you know your vision, you know what you like to do, what you enjoy, what you are passionate about, then it's simple to do what you want to do or, or what you feel. But when you don't know yourself, it's simple to say yes to everything. It's simple to do everything. It's simple to try everything. It's simple to be disappointed in everything. So um, I think there's a lot of things that ring true. So before we enter the future round and go to our last, our, our rapid fire, I, I would be remiss and not ask about your experiences, your your black experience in med school and going through this thing. If there's any takeaways or any any things that you you've you've learned 
throughout that journey being being a black man in in in, in these these spaces is there you can you can share with the audience Oh man, this <laughs> that's a loaded question. That's a yeah, loaded, that's, that's so a very much, loaded. It's so <laughs> much, so much, so much, so much. Um, I think what I would say is that what I've come to realize is that uh, the majority of things that you will experience with regards to prejudice or social biases um, or microaggressions it actually is really, really reflective of the other person. Like, in, in, like to orders of magnitude more than it has any reflection to do with you. And it, it, it's a very simple thing, and you know it. But because of the way we're conditioned in this country, I think oftentimes your natural reflex is to first look at yourself and ask, like, okay, what am I doing wrong? Or, like, am I... You know, like, you mm-hmm. make it about you. And it's like, it really has nothing to do with you. It has to do with one the you know the system of like white supremacy that all Americans are conditioned under um, and the fact that most of our other counterparts have never had the experiences or the information to even be able to understand how warped their minds and their associations have been made by their society and so for me I approach those interactions from a very educational place mm-hmm. where it's like, I will try to educate you and either you're in a place where you're ready to receive information or you're not. And I gauge that. Mm-hmm. And if you're ready to receive information, then we can have constructive dialogue. I can share things with you. You can share things with me and we can move forward together and grow. If you're not in a place where you're ready to really look at yourself and look at sort of how your conditioning and your so the system that you live under have caused you to make false associations and have caused you to develop these biases that aren't true, um, then we can't really have a conversation about that. And then I know, like, you know, how to engage or disengage with that person. <laughs> nah, nah, you you are 110% right on that. And um, I did before, like I said, and I always say this, but I didn't get a chance to ask you, and knowing what you know today, is there anything that you would tell yourself if you had, you went into a room and it was the, the the version or you but 10 years ago 10 years ago man wow and i i usually also and, and, yeah, and y- yeah I, well, I was going to say you know as as fortunate and as as blessed as i think i am um i guess i would have i would have told myself that I don't know as much as I think I know and be more, <laughs> be more humble, keep working hard, but be more humble. You know, I think, uh, humility, it accelerates growth. Ooh, that's a quote right there. Humility accelerates growth. Is that original? That's you? That's you? I just said it. I don't know. If it's <laughs> I might've might heard it somewhere, but I just said it just now. I don't know. <laughs> oh man. Nah, that's that's for oh, and since we're there, I, I gotta put you on the spot. Like, where, where is one time where you felt like, man, your your humility? Because, like I said, you you've accomplished, you've been able to be in some rare circles. When is when is the last time your humility's been checked? It's like, uh oh, dang, I don't know, I don't know. Honestly, it's gonna it's probably gonna be really funny, but like with my wife and my kids. Hold up, whoa, you got a wife and kids? I have a wife and kids, Bruh, No. It's hour into the podcast. I ain't heard nothing about them. <laughs> I mean, not to say you ain't gonna get in your personal life, but I did. That's that. Wow, man! Congrats. That's huge. 
Yeah, it's difficult too, man. It's it's huge and it's difficult. And I think that it's probably the greatest tool for self-development in my life. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, those, those relationships really push me to look at myself, you know, and, and to grow. Um, and so I think that's really where, that's the last time really I probably would have been like, dang, humility might've helped that situation go a little bit better or differently. Um, but there's obviously a lot of other cases like in science where that happens as well. Wow, man. So how long have you been, how long have you been married, man? Now I'm going on five years, but I've known her for eight. Wow. I mean, I I know we got to get to the future round, but that, that's, that's, how do, how do you balance, bro? How do you balance all this stuff and then have wife and then the kid? Like how do you have one, one kid or two? Uh, two. Wow. Son Malachi and a daughter. Adasa. This story just gets realer and realer every every single second. So, man, that is a, a father of two in all this. Like, what what is your keys to balance? I, I wanted to ask that anyway. Like, what what is your what is your Doctor Alsop's keys to balance? And I know it won't fit to everybody, but how do you kind of balance this whole everything that you do? Man, I don't need, I honest to be honest, like I don't know that I figured that out yet. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't. I think it's it's a work in progress. I think one thing that is important is having people around you that uh buy into your vision and sort of support your vision. Uh that's really helpful. But yeah, I think I've been very unbalanced at times. You know, at times like I think I was working way too hard and neglecting family. Um maybe there are times where like I'm neglecting work to be, you know, with family too much or, you know, I don't think, I don't think I've, I've figured out balance. I think I've just, just been doing stuff <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then adjusting on the fly. If it seems like something is being harmed. So, but that's a work in progress. I think I've, I think right now I'm actually getting uh, finally to a place where things are, are much more balanced. And I think, again, a lot of it has to do with shedding the excess and sort of only focusing on the things that I'm passionate about, it sort of leaves a lot more space than you would think um, when you're sort of focused in that way. Mm. Yeah, nah, that that makes that makes a lot of sense because a lot of times we we feel imbalanced, but if we looked at our schedules, we'd be like, hold up, I got a yeah. lot of stuff here that I probably shouldn't be doing. I'm talking to people I shouldn't be talking to. I'm going places I shouldn't be going. I'm saying things I shouldn't be saying. It's just a lot of stuff, but yeah, yeah. it takes that that deep in that deep time with yourself. To do that so do you meditate or anything like that or, or when do you get a chance because every i hate it everybody always says okay you got to know yourself and all this other stuff but a lot of people the question is never asked is okay how do you do that like so i know it's different from everybody else but how did you go about this part of i mean i know you can you can say oh life and years experience but i know people that's 48 30 50 still trying to know themselves i know it's an evolving yeah. process but i mean for you yeah so for me my process and this is a it's a continual process you know like as you know but for me it involves um, reading different forms of self-reflection and traveling. And that like those three for me is like the magical cocktail for like self-development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so meditation is a part of that, you know, uh, self-reflecting, um, just spending time really in deep thought, um, where like I'm not, and, and this is one thing that traveling is really good for, cause it puts you in a different environment. It puts you in a place where you're getting new stimuli, that's activating your brain in new ways and it allows you to be more creative and just think in ways that you normally don't think or have the time even to think. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so combining that with sort of always reading and like getting new information, new philosophies about how people have tried to approach life, um, those three things to me have really been sort of what have really accelerated my personal development over the past, you know, like year and a half, couple months. Man, that's huge. That is huge. So two questions about the future. Then we got our rapid fire round. One, what is a, what, what's your plans for the future in general, man? Like what is, what is, what is 2017 and, and beyond look like? Or do you want to go into, cause I read online somewhere neurosurgery or being, becoming a neurosurgeon. Like, I mean, what, if, if you had to paint it out, what, what's, what, what, what do you think it's going to look like for you the next couple of years? Man, that, that is the big question. I don't even know that I have an answer to that question. So, I mean, in the immediate, the immediate horizon is finishing, mm -hmm. um, finishing med school. When is that? Um, and then that will be in about like a year and a half. Okay. Two years. Yeah. Um, and upon finishing that, you know, I'll have some decisions to make. There are a lot of things I'm really interested in. You know, we talked about, you know, some policy things. I'm really interested in how we use social neuroscience and sociology, psychology to inform policy making. Um, obviously, I'm really interested in psychiatric disease, particularly mental health within uh, the communities of, of people of color and oppressed people, um, and sort of understanding how those communities are um, sort of particularly under certain types of stresses that can lead to mental illnesses um, sort of expressing themselves in unique ways. Uh, and then obviously, neuroscience research and how that informs all of the things I just said. Um, so... Ideally, like a career would look something like a professorship or something that is able to sort of combine all those interests into, you know, into sort of one one movement. But I don't I don't I don't have a clear sense yet of how that will happen. I'm sort of just going with going with the flow. And in the meantime, just trying to remain, you know, remain on the path to, to progress and, and further self-growth and just you know, inspire people who also are trying to, you know, achieve great things and like really move the world in, you know, a new direction. Yeah. Nah, you hit on the head. And, and I guess that kind of rolls in the last question too. It's like your last, your, your last, when it's all said and done and, um, your numbers have been called. I hate to get morbid, but uh, what what would you? <laughs> I hate to get morbid, but like <laughs> it's like, dang, bro! Like I'm 20, I got two kids. You talking about one? Uh, what, what do you want your? If you had like a sentence or two sentences, what what would you want your last le lasting legacy to be? Man, <laughs> that I lived free and I helped a lot of people. Mm, simple. And, and 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 legit. I mean, I think that's that's. I, I love that. I love that. So we are done with that. Now we just got our rapid fire round where I ask you a series of rapid fire questions. Hopefully, I get rapid fire answers, and then we just we done with the show after that. All right. So you ready to rock? Yeah, man. All right. Um, what is the best piece of advice that you have never received? Just quit. <laughs> is that? I mean, like that. Do, do you believe in that sometimes? Just quitting? Yeah. I pretty much have never like I don't believe in quitting. You know so certain stuff you don't you don't you don't you don't believe in quitting? Man, I don't know. It's just yeah. I, I mean I don't think that I 
sometimes it might be appropriate to quit. I just like really don't like quitting at anything. <laughs> and sometimes that could be that that definitely could be a flaw, right? Like all things in moderation. So yes, sometimes there are probably things that you should quit, but I just don't like it, man. I got you. Yeah. If you could add one habit and then take away one habit, what would those two be? Man, take away one habit would be how much I use Facebook. And if I would <laughs> add one new habit, it would be drinking eight glasses of water a day. Okay. All right. That's good. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Um, what would be, and being being with your intellectual background, I'm not just going to limit this. I was about to say, what's your favorite book and why? But for those of you, because I know we didn't get a chance to dig deep into your research and everything, I, everything like that, because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I don't want to take our audience down that route. Because I know if you want to get deep with it, they can, but I don't know if they're ready for all that. But for those that are just trying to get, um, Oh, just some. What are some good reads of books that you're reading right now, currently? Oh man. Um, so there's a book. Uh, so the two books I'm reading right now actually are this book called Genesis and the Big Bang. It's by this uh, former MIT physicist who's all also a Jewish theologian, and he basically tries to combine quantum physics with sort of the biblical tradition of the first six days of Genesis and basically comes up with a theory of how they're basically describing the same events and he sort of lays it out in a really scientific but easy to way uh, easy to read way. And the second book is um, Blind Spot by Mazarin Banaji. Um, and it basically talks about sort of social biases and sort of the science behind prejudice and why people in the US are are prejudiced and biased and things like that. Got you. And I know this is a little off care, but I do want to ask with on that prejudice piece, do, would 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 in from a research perspective, is any of that research gonna dial back and, and take into consideration slavery or that might be a bigger question than I think, but it as far as the these 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 beliefs or is it more in our in our humane makeup? Um, I think prejudice plays uh Prejudice and sort of the way it it plays out in society, at least in terms of race, I think plays into sort of an evolutionary system for processing information and deciding, you know, whether people are in group or out group or dangerous or friends. Like there's an evolutionary sort of conserved circuit for um, processing social information that I think is basically what prejudices are latching onto, but I don't think we have to be prejudiced. We're conditioned to be prejudiced. But that conditioning is using sort of these circuits that are um, sort of circuits that were once helpful in terms of being able to know sort of, you know, is this something that I should be afraid of? Um, but we don't have to be prejudiced. We're conditioned to be prejudiced. Mm, all right. That's a, that. That that's okay. I got you. I got you. And I don't uh, think anyone's done that experiment, but that's that's my yeah. belief based on the experiments that have been done. That is going to be a whole. It sounds like a whole new uh, frontier of science right there. If you could tackle that one, man. So I keep my prayers in that. <laughs> all right. Last two and then rapid fire round. Uh, what is your What is your biggest fear? <laughs> <laughs> Um, wow. Um, I think, I, I think failure and failure for me, um, being defined by not executing on my vision. Mm, yeah. That's something to keep you up. About. And last question. If you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do? <laughs> wow. Oh man, that is tough. 
I would increase science funding. Mm. Wow. Wow. I would increase science funding. Um, because I think once you kill the real engine for innovation, the country is automatically on its decline and that hurts everyone. Um, like I could pass a law for, you know, discrimination or I could, I could do a number of things that passing laws won't actually fix, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, I think my first instinct is to like make some social policy law. Um, but I think the more we understand about why we are the way we are, um, the better able we're able, the better able we're able, we're, you know, able to understand sort of how to, how to fight the problems in a way that will have lasting impacts. And I mean, we've had many laws passed, but if people are still messed up, it doesn't really work long term. Nah, um, yeah. mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe I would increase science funding in a way that allows us to tackle some of these more social issues um, in a more robust sort of um, pragmatic way that that sort of consolidated efforts across a number of different disciplines related to social processing. But I think creating some sort of initiative, like for understanding sort of, you know, the social aspect of, of these social, social um, issues would be what I would be interested in. Yep. Well, I just can't wait for 10 years, man, 10 years, 10, 15, and kind of see you what your research leads and how that kind of intersects. Because I mean, that is a, that's something I never really thought of to kind of have a science perspective outside of like Ben Carson. But I mean, yeah. Uh, wow! No, don't, like, don't, like, don't I'm, even. I'm not opening that door right now. No, because I'm not, that's just. Yeah, yeah, I'm not opening that door. So, as as a culture change agent, and, it, and as the wrap of the show, I always ask um, my my everybody that's been on the show, and it's 56 episodes and counting. The last question about the culture, and if if you could change one thing about society, most specifically our African American culture, uh, what would it be and why? And this is always the the, the biggest. The I know. I'm, I'm trying to say like the thing I really think without it sounding super cliche. I don't know if there's a <laughs> yeah. way to do that. You <laughs> gonna say I crab really in the know. barrel is gonna be I, like? I, <laughs> I really don't know if there's a way to do that. I mean, honestly, I would teach us how to. Um, man, I would teach us how to love ourselves um, in a way that's detached from the way America has taught us to think about ourselves. Hmm. Um, I think if we had that, then there's a lot that could happen. Hmm. And I'm going to leave that there. I like that. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I believe that. <laughs> so, so this has been a, a fun, it's been an informative, it's been an engaging hour and 15 minutes man I, I definitely thank you and appreciate you giving me so much of your time that you now that i know with these wife these kids and all this other stuff you certainly do not have man for to to bless us with your perspective your experience your journey on the show man i appreciate it man man i appreciate you having me and thank you for the love man oh no doubt no doubt so for my audience out there where can we find you at where can we possibly reach you out for a couple questions that we had like where you at on social media where can we find you at yeah, Matt, um, I'm on Instagram um, at Dr. Trey, D-R-T-R-3. Um, and I probably am on that the most. So, you know, comment on something, DM me. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter 
with the same the same uh, handle DRTR3. Got you, got you, got you, got you. So Minority Trailblazer Podcast. I also I'll probably is it cool if I include like a link to kind of your research stuff? Not on yeah, on the yeah, man. thing. Yeah, I, definitely. I, I'll definitely. include that. So for my people that want to take it to that next level, if you want to find a way to reach out to him, you find a way because that man is busy, so don't be sending crazy emails. So on that note, Minority Trailblazer Nation, thank you once and again for tuning in to episode fifty-eight of Minority Trailblazer Podcast. So before we end. I got to say three things. First, make sure you leave a review. Second, share with a friend. And last, but certainly not least, four words. Change the freaking culture. Good night.